Good morning. I realize not everybody here might know who I am, so I want to introduce myself first. Uh, my name is Ben Armstrong, and I'm the uh, youth pastor here at Keystone Church. That looks great. Thank you, guys. And uh, it's my privilege to bring forth the Word of God today. Uh, we have been speaking through First uh, John in our series called Joyful. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to First uh, John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. Uh, and as Kyle has discussed, the, the reason that we're looking at this passage, uh, at this book, and calling it Joyful is from verse 4, uh, where John says, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And one of the key components of joy is love. And that's probably why John has such a heavy focus on love. If you look at all of John's writing, you see a focus on love. You know, you look at one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That was Jesus speaking that, but that was John who recorded that. And clearly things like that that Jesus said left a big impression on John. For when he wrote his epistle, specifically 1 John, you see love mentioned over and over and over again. In fact, I'm a stats guy. I don't know if anyone else likes stats here, but I like stats. So I'm going to give you some stats about love in 1 John. The word love, uh, which is agape, translated love, translated a few times beloved in the book of 1 John, uh, is used 52 times in the book of 1 John. 52 times in a total of 105 verses. So it's almost half the verses. Now, the interesting thing is today, uh, we're looking at 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Up to this point, we've looked at about 24 verses, and love has only been mentioned three times. But we're going to see that start to increase. We're going to see the word love and the idea and the concept of love increase over the next few chapters. And today, we're going to look at a command that John gives about love, more correctly, about what we aren't supposed to love. That's essential for us to find a true and everlasting joy. So let's read together uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you give in this word. God, we thank you that you are present with us, that you have given us clear direction and instruction in your word. And I pray that our hearts will be humble right now to hear what it is that you have to say. May you be glorified. May your name be lifted high. And may our hearts be impacted to live for you because of who you are and because of the words that you've preserved for us in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So John starts this passage off here with a very clear command. Don't love the world. Don't love the world. He says in verse 15, do not love the world or things in the world. It's, it's kind of a pretty clear command there, but the problem that we have in our culture is a misunderstanding of that word love. We use that word love very liberally. We use it in a lot of different ways. You know, we love the taste of a nice juicy steak. We love the smell of a summer rain. Uh, we love playing games. We love watching sports. We love traveling. We love our job. We love our family. We love our friends. We love our, our spouse. We love our kids. We love our God. 
the same word applied to many different things and portrayed in many different ways. But even if we were to isolate the love in those to, to the love of a relationship, even then we as a culture have a weak view of love. We have a very subjective view of love, if you will. Let's look simply at the clearest form of love and, and the love that, that comes in marriage. All right, so in our culture, people will fall in love and then they'll get married. And then a few years go by and they wake up one day and they're like, you know what? I, I think we should get a divorce. And when pushed as to why, they'll say, I just don't, I just don't love them anymore. That, that feeling that I had when we first met, I just don't have that feeling anymore. But that's a very shallow understanding of the word love. When my wife and I got married, we stood in front of a church and we made a vow to love one another. For better or worse, we made a choice to love one another. And, and in our marriage, we don't simply love one another because it's easier, because it's fun. And a lot of times it is, but there are certainly times in marriage, and anybody here who's married can agree with this, that it's not always easy to love your spouse. Sometimes that can be because of circumstances in your life that are going on, and frankly, it's not easy to love anybody because of the stress you're feeling. And other times, it, it's because that spouse has said something or done something, or probably more correctly, not done something that you've told them to do over and over and over again. And it's just like, it makes it hard for you to love them but you still love them because we understand from Scripture what love is. And love is a commitment. Love is a commitment. Jesus was asked a question once, what is the greatest commandment? And this is actually the passage that our, our kidsman is memorizing uh, this month. And, and in response to that, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, when I teach our students, uh, I like to teach them to evaluate Scripture, look at Scripture, and look at context. All right? So there's a few different forms of context that, that I've, I've talked to them about and that I like to try to apply in my own Bible study. Uh, one is the immediate or textual context, what comes right before, what comes right after. So you're not just looking at a verse, pulling it out, and, and missing the context entirely. Another is historical context. Historical context looks at what it was like then. Because the scripture was not written in 21st century United States of America. It was written thousands of years ago in a completely different culture than what we have today. So if we look at it in today's culture, through the lens of today's culture, we're more likely to misinterpret scripture. So with those two things in mind, first the, the immediate context of this passage is Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, to the promised land. They're getting ready to enter the promised land and he gives them this command. Now what's so significant about this command? It helps us if we look at the historical context. In that day and age in the Middle East, there was something that were called Caesarean vassal treaties. And what that was is a king would come, he would take over a land. And if he took over your land, you had a few choices. You could flee, you know, go and move and live somewhere else, at which point the king probably wouldn't pursue you unless you were someone of great value. Uh, you could fight, but if the king's taking over the land, likely he's going you know, to kill you or imprison you. Or you could, you could take a treaty and live in that land under that king, under his rule. And that was called a Caesarean vassal treaty. Caesarean being the king, vassal being yourself. And in that treaty, they would often use the verbiage, the language, you are to love me. 
Now, if we have an understanding of love that's an emotional-based understanding, we've got to be asking ourselves, you know, what, what's that about? That's kind of weird. I mean, why would I want to love somebody who just took over my land, probably killed people that I know and love, and destroyed parts of my village? It's not a feelings-based love. What he's saying is, I want you to commit to me. I want you to commit to me. If you're going to live in my land, I need to know that I can trust you. If another country comes and fights, I need to know that I can depend on you to fight alongside me and not to, de- not to betray me. Well, with that understanding, this passage right here, it helps us to understand this is not love the Lord your God, have an emotional feeling. God is bringing them into the promised land, and he's creating a Caesarean vassal treaty with them, saying you need to be committed to me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. He is to be their king, their ruler, their Lord. Now, a third form of context that we look at is called scriptural context, or at least that's why I like to call it. I don't know what it's officially called. But it's looking at all of scripture and saying, how does my interpretation line up with the rest of scripture? And I like to use the analogy of, you know, when you go bowling uh, and you've got small kids with you and they're really not that great at bowling, or maybe this applies to you, I'm not sure, and you put the bumpers up, right? Because you want that ball to, to go down and, and not get a gutter every single time. Well, that's why I like to call scriptural context. We get our interpretation, and then we look at the rest of Scripture to see if, if, this is some, if this is a safe interpretation or not. It helps us keep our interpretation from going into the gutter, if you will. So we've got to ask ourselves then, you know, how I just laid out what that passage means. Well, is that, is that scripturally true? I mean, am I using the historical, something historical about that time and, and allowing that to, to misunderstand Scripture? So let's look at a few different passages in Scripture. Probably the most famous passage about love, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul defines what love is, and you've heard this at countless weddings. Now, I, as I read a portion of this passage up on the screen, I want you to ask yourself, is love an emotional thing that I feel, or is it a commitment based on this? So 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. I'm going to stop right there. Love is patient. All right? I don't know about you guys, but I don't, like, wake up thinking, man, I just can't wait to be patient, which I understand, you know, I can't wait to be patient. There's a little irony even in saying that. But I I just can't wait to be patient. It's not something that I naturally do. It's something I have to choose to do. So love is patient. Love is kind. Same kind of thing there. Then he lists a few things that love is not. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. All of those things, if I'm I'm not being those things, it's something I have to choose. It doesn't come naturally. When I'm driving down the road and there's a car in front of me that just won't pass that buggy and they're driving five miles per hour when there's clearly plenty of space to get around that buggy and I'm starting to feel a little irritable I don't just think naturally, oh, you know what? I'm just not feeling you. I have to force myself to love that person. I have to force myself to show them love, to to not be irritated by them. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You need to be committed and intentional in order to achieve the love that Paul outlines here in this passage. But we would fail to take into account the the full measure of the commitment of love if we didn't look at the purest indwelling of love, and that is with Jesus. 
Jesus was committed to God and committed to us. His commitment to us was so great that he endured the pain and torture of the cross to take the death that we deserved, also that we could spend eternity with him. We see this passage, this truth through multiple passages in Scripture. One mentioned already, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The intentional act of giving. John 15:13, where Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Not that someone's life is taken from him, but someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus' death was an act of love because he was committed to us. And Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. You don't love somebody who's sinning against you because you feel like it. Any parent here will tell you, if your kid is just being obstinate and rude, you're not feeling like loving them at that moment. You're feeling like sending them to their room. You have to intentionally love them, which might be sending them to their room because discipline is a part of love, but that's a different sermon. When we love something the way John refers to love, we are committed to that something. And John tells us not to love the world or the things of the world. In other words, don't commit to the world or the things of the world because God's love is to be our foundation for love. God's love is to be our foundation for love. When we look at the many things that we choose in our lives to commit to, it's easy for us to look at them in a linear way. You know, we, we line them up and, and we rank them. You know, we got the first thing we're going to love, and then the next thing. We got, we got our list of the priorities of how we love things, how we're committed to them. Whatever's in the front gets the most of that love and on down the list. And, and sometimes we do that uh, in, our, in our spiritual life too. And if we as Christians were to, were to do that, um, I've, I've got some visuals here I'm going to use. These are Legos, so I don't know if you can see from there. They're Legos. Um, I built this myself. Um, thank you. Thank you. My wife's clapping for me. No, no, don't worry. You don't have to. That's the one that matters. Um, my son was also very impressed. He's nine years old, and he was like, how'd you do that? And I thought, how are you amazed at this? This really isn't that great. But it was for him, so that's good. You know, I, I, I got at least a crowd that enjoys it. But this is how we sometimes line up love. We, we as good Christians say, all right, you know what? I got to love God first. God's the first thing I love. And then if we're married, we've got our spouse. That's got to be next. And then we've got our family. That could be, you know, parents. It could be siblings. It could be children. Uh, whatever fits into that category. Uh, and then we have our job could be also our schooling, our pursuit of a career. Uh, But this is, you know, and then we've got more things. I could have made more, but I didn't, this took me a while. I mean, that's how bad I am at Lego. So I didn't really want to take too much time. But we've got these things that we love, and we line them up this way. And we're saying, you know what? I'm going to love God first. What's left over? I'm going to pour into my spouse. What's left over? I'm going to pour into my family. What's left over? I'm going to pour into my job and on down the list. The problem with that is if we look at that Deuteronomy 6-5 passage where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and we look at it this way, we've got to pour all of our love into God. That's what Scripture is telling us. This is a never-ending basin that we pour all of our love into, which means then we don't have anything left for the other things in our life, which is why this is not a great way 
to look at it because we know that that can't be the right interpretation because as Kyle talked about a few weeks ago and, and as First John tells us a little bit earlier and we'll see more later, we need to love others. So clearly we don't pour all of our love into God and have nothing left for anyone else. So this is not a great way to look at things. Instead of seeing God as the first in the list, we need to see God as the foundation for our list. Now this is a, a base plate. If, like, if you're not a Lego player, I want to make sure I, I explain this. Some of you are like, yeah, of course, I know what that is. But this is a base plate here that you build Legos upon. This will represent our love for God. We love God first. He is our foundation for love. And our love for him helps us learn to love other things. We love our spouse because we love God. And because God teaches us the purest way to love our spouse. Many different places in scripture, but one, one example is Ephesians 5.25 when he's speaking specifically to husbands. And says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We love our spouse the way that God has defined. We love God, and that leads us to love our spouse the way God has defined. Then when it comes to our family, we love our family the way God defines. There's many passages in Scripture that talk about that, uh, and depending on, on which part of the family you're talking about, you know, honor your father and mother. But here's one specifically about children. And again, it pertains to fathers, but it's true uh, for all of us. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You want to love your children, you do it the way God has told you to, by bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord. That is the purest way to love your children. And we love our jobs because we love God. And God instructs us to have a better perspective as we serve. The next two verses uh, in this passage in Ephesians 6, we don't need that. Uh, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of, as, of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart of God, rendering service with goodwill to the Lord and not to man. You want to love your job appropriately? You love your job by loving God. Loving God leads you to work as if you're working for the Lord and not for men. But there's another foundation that we could build upon, uh, and, which is why John gives us a choice here. Our choice is love God or love the world. Love God or love the world. Over here, I've got these foundation plates. These are actually ones for Duplos, which are a little bit bigger blocks. Uh, I had to borrow these from Andrew because I play with Legos. He plays with Duplos still. But um, So the, the idea is they're different, though. And, and they're, they're safer. They're a little bit bigger. Um, kids won't choke on them. That's why they're made that way. John makes it very clear in this passage. We can only have one foundation. We can only have one foundation. He says in verse 15, the second half, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can almost hear John echoing Jesus' words. When he heard Jesus teach, you cannot serve two masters. Now, Jesus taught that about money, but even as he says that, listen to the words Jesus says, and you see this idea of a commitment love. He says, no one can serve two masters in Matthew 6, 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see the, the, the correlation there between hate and despise. Those are synonyms. And he uses two other words as synonyms. Love and devotion. Which again goes back to that idea that love is a commitment thing and not a feeling-based thing. 
And his point is we can't love both. We can't love both. Yet often we try to have it both ways. We try and compartmentalize and say, you know, we have certain things that we love that are of God and other things that we love that are of the world. But John makes it clear that to choose the world is to reject God. To choose the world is to reject God. When we love the world, the love of God is not in us. Loving the world pushes out God, and loving God pushes out things of this world. It's because these are two entirely different foundations. And just as a building is built on a single foundation, so is our love. Now, some people will say, you know what, hey, John, John might be a little harsh here. I mean, really, like, you're saying if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John. Isn't that, isn't that a little bit extreme? I mean, maybe, maybe that, that island of Patmos, spending a little too much time there, got to your head. Well, James, the half-brother of Jesus, uses even stronger language. When he says in James 4.4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is why we need to take John's command to not love the world or the things of this world. We need to take that command seriously. For when we love the world and the things of this world, we are rejecting God. Instead, what we need to do is we need to love what is from God. We need to love what is from God. We need to properly evaluate our lives and evaluate if what we have, does it fit in our lives? Does it fit? Is this something that I can love by loving God? Do these go together? Because if we have a foundation of loving God, we'll easily be able to spot what belongs and what doesn't. And in those cases, we can reject the things of this world. We can reject the things of this world. Now, some of you might have paused earlier in this passage and said, wait, John's saying don't love the world. But isn't that what we as Christians are called to do, to love the world? And isn't that, you know, God so loved the world? Well, that's why we have to understand that that there's different things. When he's talking about the world, he's not referring to the world as a physical land, and he's not referring to the world as the people within the world. Yes, we are supposed to love the people within the world, but what he's referring to is is he's, he's referring to the world as being an embodiment of sin, a representation of Satan and everything that is anti God. And John outlines for us, he makes it very clear for us here. In verse 16, the things that are of the world, so we know exactly what he's talking about. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These three things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life, these three things are really the main categories for sin. Every sin falls into at least one of these camps. So he's kind of outlined the base, the main ingredients. Like, you know, if you're, if you're baking, one of your main ingredients you use in a lot of different things is flour, right? And that's the same kind of thing here. This, these are the things that are, are the, the common ingredients in all sin. In fact, when Eve was tempted to sin, it was all three of these things that led to her temptation. In Genesis 3.6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. 
and also gave some to her, her, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She learned very quickly and harshly that you cannot love the world and love God. These things are sins of the heart that lead us to sin. We lie because in pride, we seek for people to see us as great. We covet because our eyes desire something that's not ours. We lust because our flesh desires what turns out to be temporary satisfaction. You can think of any sin, and you'll see how it fits into at least one of these categories. In fact, on the back of your your handout, there's a bunch of different questions that you can do either on your personal time, as a family, uh, with some friends in in one of our care groups. And one of the questions is to to look at Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted, and look at those temptations and see how they land in these three camps. When we can dissect our desires, we can see the motivation, the heart behind it. And we can ask ourselves, is this a desire of the flesh, a desire of the eyes, or is it something that, that pridefully we desire to make us look great? And that can help us determine, is this something that should be in my life or should not? It's going to take diligence, but it's also going to take humility too. Because we need to be willing to not do this alone. We can't just say, oh, you know what, I can do this all by myself, and I can, I can work through my own sin issue here without anybody's help. That's foolish, and that's not biblical. In fact, what we need to do is we need to, we need to be asking God first and foremost in prayer, show me, Lord, if there's anything in my life that just doesn't fit the foundation of loving you that I want. Is there anything that I'm also trying to put in this life that does not fit? illuminate my eyes to see those. But Scripture's also clear that we need others. Scripture tells us, confess our sins to one another. So we need those people in our lives, those people that are close with us, to point out and say, hey, you know what? This sin, this issue, this thing right here that you have in your life, it doesn't fit in a life that truly loves God. And when we hear that, we need to be humble. We need to be humble to listen to them to follow their instruction, and to eradicate that sin, to remove that from our lives. And instead, uh, in, we need to reject the things that are of the world. Instead, we need to search for the things of God. We need to search for the things of God. Paul writes to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy two twenty-two. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and other things that are of God. We need to pursue and search for those things. Diligently pursue them. Too often, however, we're passive. We are passive in our walks with God. We feel that we're good because we're not actively pursuing sin. But what we fail to realize is that we are in a spiritual battle, and to be passive is not an option. We're in a spiritual battle, and to be passive is not an option. I like to use the analogy of, you know those moving walkways at the airport that, you know, you, you get on them because, you know, you, you need to get somewhere quicker, and so it helps you walk a little faster, or you're just tired. That's usually what I use them for, and you just like to ride on it. Our spiritual life is like being on one of those moving walkways. Except for that moving walkway is pulling us away from God and towards things of this world, towards sin. 
And in our spiritual life, sometimes we think, you know what? I'm facing God, so I'm in good shape here. I'm not facing the things of this world. I'm facing God. And, you know, I'm certainly not like these people that are running past me and going straight towards the world. I am facing God. I'm facing the things of God, so I'm in good shape because I'm not doing that stuff over there. But we're not actively pursuing God. And then what we realize is one day we realize we are so far from God because we have stopped pursuing him. We got to a place we felt we were comfortable and we stopped pursuing God. We let the things of this world, the the pride of eyes, the pride of flesh, or the, the desire of the eyes, the desires of flesh, and the pride of life, we let these things slowly pull us away from God. And we didn't even notice it until we're far from him. A clear way to see this is if you've ever seen a a church that has completely dismantled. You can see in that, dissect it and do an autopsy like that that, uh, recent podcast about the, the church in Mars Hill. You can see then how things slowly eroded that church. Now it's easy to see in a church because that's, that's, you know, big and public. But it's something, if you were to do an autopsy of your own spiritual life, you'd be able to see that as well. What's pulling you away? What's eroding you? Christian, we must not be lazy in our walk with Christ. We must push against the things of the world, flee the things of the world, flee our youthful passions, and pursue the things that are of God. We must diligently search out those things that are of God. And we'll learn as we do that, that our love, if we truly are growing in our love for God, our love will lead to action. Love leads to action. Not only do we find the things that are of God and reject the things of the world, but we need to be diligent to take the things of God and place them on the foundation of God's love. We do these things the way that God has taught us to. You know, we can love these things in a way, even though these are good things from God. We can love these things in a worldly way. We can love our spouse in a way that's not of God. God teaches us to serve our spouse. That's a passage we looked at earlier. But we can love our spouse and say, you know what? I want to get what I want from this marriage. I am looking, what can I be gaining from this relationship? And we no longer serve our wife, but we expect to get from that relationship. When we do that, though, we're going to one day find out this doesn't work. It might look like it fits, but it doesn't fit. And one day down the the road, we're going to realize this is not the way to build this. It doesn't feel secure. And the only time that we truly can feel secure in our relationships is if we build them on a foundation of loving God. If it's a good gift of God, we cannot snatch that thing and pull it away, and say, I want to use it my way. We have to say, God, this is from you, and I want to search your word and learn to see, how can I use this? How can I enjoy this in a way that is of you? That's the only way we can find security in our marriage, in our family, in our relationships, in our job, is if we're doing it in a way that God has designed. When we're building on a proper foundation for love, it will be clear, too, because we do the will of the foundation we love. We do the will of the foundation we love. Verse 17, John says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Whoever does the will of God. Notice that he doesn't say whoever loves God. At the beginning, he says don't love the world. He never says love God, but he doesn't need to because he's defining what it means to love God. Whoever does the will of God. Now, where did John get that from? How does he know that to love God means to do the will of God? Because he learned it from Jesus himself. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Evidence of our love for God is that we keep his commandments. We live on the foundation of love for God. And all the things we love have been secured in this foundation. So because this is our foundation, we do the will of the one whom we love. We love things that are of him, and we love those things in his way, how he has defined, how he has called us to love those things. Not only do we do the will of our foundation for love, but we share the future of our foundation for love. We share the future of our foundation for love. And this is the urgency of the command to not love the world. It isn't something that we can just read and think, oh, that sounds nice. You know, maybe I'll make a t-shirt or, or put it, hang it up on my wall or, or post it on social media. No, this is something that we have to allow to penetrate our hearts. We have to apply this to our lives because our future depends on it. We are building our future on one of these two foundations. One is stable and the other is built on a fault line. And John tells us the world is passing away along with its desires. The future of this world is tragic. If we build our lives on on a love and commitment to the world, we will go down with that ship. But John also tells us that whoever does the will of God abides forever. The future of the one who commits to and loves God is eternal, not because of the, the person that they are or because of the things that they do, but because of whom they choose to commit to. Because he is eternal. We are securing ourselves to a foundation that is never shaken. When we're thrust around by the winds and waves of this world, we can have peace, for our foundation is not of this world. You guys ever meet a Christian who is going through something terribly hard, and you're just like, how are they doing it? How are they peaceful right now? How are they not letting this destroy them? This is how. Because they aren't doing those things. They aren't looking for what can I get from those things. They're saying, God, you gave this to me. And I want to love this the way that you taught me to love it. That's how they have that strong and secure foundation. Now, it's sadly natural for Christians at this time to to kind of tune out. You know, you're, you're hearing some undertones of a salvation idea here, right? And you're thinking, all right, so we're going to the salvation part of the message. And I can tune out here because I'm all good. Right? I said a prayer. I'm good. I go to church. I do, I do what I need to do. I check the box. I'm all set. Once saved, always saved, right? Well, the problem is that we're depending on a prayer. And the sad reality is there are many who are convinced that they are Christians because of a prayer or an outward lifestyle, but are in danger of the fire of hell. Why? Well, because they're not truly loving or committed to God. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of those key components there to salvation is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's not just a title, like you would call someone Mr. or Miss. No, that says not just about who you're speaking about, 
Jesus, not just saying, Jesus, you're Lord, but it also says about who we are in relation to Jesus. Jesus, you are not just a Lord, you are my Lord, which means that I am subject to you. I am submissive under you. You are my king. You are my ruler. We are submitting to him. He is the king. We are the servants. We are making a Caesarean facile treaty with him. That's what salvation is. I will love you with all of my heart, with my might, with my strength. I will commit to you because you are Lord. Our love and commitment to him is our foundation. But many think that just because they have the right blocks in their lives that they're all set, right? You know, they go to church. They say their prayers. They read their Bibles. They do all these things. But one day, Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. We see this sad reality in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And that doesn't mean simply what we do, but again, the foundation that we have for doing it. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is evidence that we can have the right blocks, but be building on the wrong foundation. These, these people, they prophesied in his name. They cast out demons in his name. They did mighty works in his name. These things sound good. These are the blocks that they should have. So why is Jesus saying, I never knew you? Because they're doing the right things with the wrong focus. Desire of the eyes, desire of the flesh, a pride of life. I know for me, when I was in college, um, this is kind of an embarrassing story, but I'll share it anyway. Uh, I, I went to a, a prayer retreat, all right? So we, the whole retreat, the whole weekend, we had a lot of prayer mixed in throughout. And when I came home from that retreat, uh, my roommate asked me, so how was the retreat? And I was like, oh, man, it was so great. Uh, it was a great retreat. And, and there was this one night, we got around a campfire, and everybody just kind of prayed out loud. And when I prayed, when it was my turn, when I started praying, oh, you, you should have heard the people agreeing with me. I mean, I had so many uh-huhs and amens. Man, I was on fire. Now, what does that sound like? Pride of life, right? Focusing on how I looked. I was doing the right thing. I had the right block there. I was praying. But I wasn't doing it the way that God defined prayer to be. I wasn't humble in my prayer. I was more like that Pharisee who was saying, God, thank you, I'm not like him. I wasn't humble as I prayed. We can have the right blocks, but the wrong foundation. You can go to church, you can pray, you can read your Bible, you can serve at a homeless shelter. But if you do it out of desire for what you get, what you see, or the pride you feel, you are building your foundation on something that is passing away. So we need to evaluate our lives. We need to evaluate our lives. What do you love? What are you committed to? Do you love the things of this world? Looking for personal gain and satisfaction that will never last? Or do you love the things of God in the way that God has called you to love them because you are committed to the one who is eternal? 
Which foundation are you building your life upon? We have a decision to make, and one that's been there since the beginning. In fact, I want to close with a passage in Joshua. Now, we, we started, and we looked at that Deuteronomy 6, where the people were getting ready to enter the land. They're getting ready to enter the land. And then Joshua is the one who ends up leading them into the land. And he is, he's old, and he's about to pass away. And so he's giving them his final instructions to these people that he knows, that he's served, that he's seen have ups and downs, that he's seen in a place when they're building on a proper foundation, in a place when they are giving in to the pride of life, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And Joshua says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in which land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That same question is one we have to answer today. Choose this day whom you will serve. Who are you committed to in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, God, for the clarity in your word that you shall tell us very clearly that we have a choice. A choice to love the things of this world or to love you. And Lord, you don't just tell us here's a choice, but you tell us clearly the outcome of these choices. God, you know from your own time here on earth, the temptation you went through, how hard it is for us to put the blocks of you in the right place and to leave out things that are of this world. God, we are so often tempted by a desire of the flesh, a desire of the eyes, a pride of life, and we repent of that, Lord. Help us, God, to remove things from our life that do not fit a foundation that loves you. God, help us to reject the things of this world and to search for and pursue the things that are of you. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives and may anything that we have in our life that does not glorify you, Lord, may you help us eliminate it. Thank you for your love and your commitment to us and help us to mirror that love by being committed to you as best we can, knowing that one day we will know and see clearly what it means to be truly and fully committed to you. In your name we pray.